welcome to episode 17 of the Underground Christian Podcast, the sensible Christian resource for sensible Christians. In episode 16, I presented some information that might suggest the government here in the United States is not what it appears to be, at least to discerning listeners. Its leaders are not what they appear to be. Their objectives are not what they appear to be. It's a government filled with lies, supported by a media of liars to accomplish something that it's lying about. As we've discussed multiple times before, people who lie and deceive exhibit skills that were given to them by their leader, Satan. They are members of the world, which is an organized social, political, economic, and military system that exists to advance the agenda of Satan. Our government, unfortunately, has elected to join that world. At the end of episode 16, the question came up about whether Christians are allowed biblically to own and bear arms, and under what circumstances those arms can be used. If the government goes full tyrannical on us, are we allowed to use them then? Just from a worldly perspective, I advised against getting too eager to confront representatives of law enforcement or the military, especially as a participant in an armed rebellion. It's not likely to work out very well. But the question we're really concerned with is not whether worldly people should take violent actions to fight oppression, but whether Christians should do so. Are Christians even allowed to possess and use firearms? biblically speaking. Now, I caveat this by saying this is not my personal advice. As an ex-army guy, my personal advice might deviate significantly from scripture. After all, I was trained by the world to think like the world and act like the world. So the worldly me is not the one to listen to unless you're part of the world. God is the one Christians are supposed to listen to. So how does scripture counsel us on this divisive and pressing issue? As always, some contextual background is important if we want to understand the issue correctly. The first principle we need to acknowledge and remember is that God raises up governments and leaders. For example, in Daniel 2, 20-21, he wrote, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Kings in this passage represent ruling authorities, governments, and their leaders. Daniel is praising God because it's he who places these people into governmental authority. So the principle is that God establishes governments and installs governmental leaders, and deinstalls them as needed. In Romans 13.1, Paul instructs, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. From these two verses, the most common interpretation is that God raises up and brings down all rulers in all places at all times, exercising his absolute sovereignty in the process. But as I've pointed out before, just because a king is sovereign does not mean that he always exercises his sovereignty in every circumstance. Sometimes a king lets others make decisions. To say that God directly appoints all political leaders based on these two verses in the Bible is an example of a hasty interpretation. To check if a biblical interpretation is correct, we must check to see if the interpretation violates the instruction of any other scripture. If it does, then the interpretation cannot be correct because God, who inspired the writing and compilation of the Bible, does not contradict himself. So if there is another verse that contradicts this absolute interpretation, then we have to look for another interpretation. So is there? How about Hosea 8.4, where God says, They set up kings, but not by me, 
They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. Here is an example where God did not exercise his sovereignty over the appointing of political rulers, but they were still appointed. This is a situation where God could have exercised his authority, his sovereignty, but he didn't. So the interpretation that God directly sets up and takes down all rulers has to be incorrect. The correct interpretation is that God has the authority to do so, and he does so when he wishes. When Paul says, the Apostle Paul, there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, he is referring to a system of governance headed by God. The system is subordinated to God's sovereign authority because, as stated by the psalmist in Psalm 22:28, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. God is the ultimate sovereign over the entire system of lesser governments which act through his authority. He consents to, tolerates, or suffers all human rulers on the earth. When Paul says, the authorities that exist are appointed by God, he does not mean that they are directly appointed by God, but rather they are indirectly appointed by God through his ministers. Consider the authorities in the American colonies back in pre-revolutionary days. Did the King of England personally appoint every official in the colonies? Of course not. His ministers appointed officials. Who appointed officials? Who appointed officials? But the ultimate authority came from the king, and that was the authority that the appointed officials cited. If you rebelled against any of the lesser officials, it was legally as if you had rebelled against the king, since he was the source of their authority. So all authority does come from God, and he does appoint all rulers, just indirectly. He can have appointment authority and still not appoint directly. So what is the point that Paul was making when he said, the authorities that exist are appointed by God? Well, he was making the point that when we contest rulers who are acting under the authority of God, it is the same as if we are contesting God, whether we like those rulers or not. If God puts up with them, it's not from his lack of understanding of their character and activities. He knows everything that everybody does, says, and thinks. If he lets them continue to rule, then he has a reason for it. That reason may not be real convenient or favorable or pleasant for us, but then who are we to question God? God has his plan for existence completely under control. Here in America and in other Western democracies, we've been placed in a unique position compared to the rest of humanity, especially when compared to the rest of humanity throughout most of human history. We have the very rare and almost unique privilege of living at a time and in a place where we can select our own leaders. This assumes, of course, that the selection process is not fraught with rampant fraud and corruption, but assuming it's not, we have an obligation as Christians to participate in the process that God has created, and we have the duty to honor the legitimate winner of an election. Now, in the case of politicians who obtain their positions by lying, cheating, and fraudulent election practices, we're not required to honor them as leaders, but if not, we had better be very sure of our facts. Fortunately, our political system guarantees our right to protest and contest the election, peacefully. We can try to right wrongs, but what we can't fix, God is going to fix on his own schedule. Meanwhile, as Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1. Read the rest of Romans 13.1-7 for a complete picture of how we are to behave before the authorities.
Now, I don't think that it includes a provision for an armed uprising, even though rebellions are in our American history, and not because tyrannical rulers don't deserve it. Christ calls on Christians to exemplify what his kingdom is all about, regardless of which political system we live in. When Paul said that we have been crucified to Christ, Galatians 2.20, he meant that we are to give up our lives to advance Christ's interests, even when it's not very fun, fulfilling, or immediately rewarding to us personally. He was simply rephrasing the idea that was first articulated by Christ when Jesus told his followers in Matthew 10.38 to take up their cross and follow him. That's not a picture of a cakewalk with frosting and sprinkles raining down on us. It's a picture of suffering and hardship and possibly something leading to death. To the world, that looks like humiliation and defeat, but the wisdom of God is greater than the world. We are not to live for the immediate fulfillment and gratification in this life, but for the delayed fulfillment and glorification in our life to come. While we exist on this earth, we're to act like good citizens, but at the same time, we're not to become part of the world system that Satan has created to advance his agenda. In fact, we're to withdraw from it. So, if the government requires us to do something immoral, unrighteous, or that's in opposition to God's will, that's where we have to decline and take whatever consequences befall us, just like Daniel and his friends did. It started when they were being groomed for court service after being forcibly deported to Babylon. The king wanted them to eat foods that were forbidden by Jewish law, and so Daniel and his friends stood on principle and requested permission from their overseer to only eat vegetables. In another incident, King Nebuchadnezzar gathered the entire population of senior government officials together and ordered them to bow down and worship a statue, which is idolatry and strictly forbidden by God. Daniel's friends refused, and even when they were threatened with death by conflagration in a furnace, they still refused. Daniel was missing from this event for some reason. That's the kind of discernment that God wants us to have when it comes to obedience to the government's edicts and the kind of fortitude we are to display in the face of persecution by the government. So the answer to whether we are to take up arms against a government entity, no matter how evil and godless it is, is no. So what about personal defense? A common question is whether Christians are allowed to carry weapons and use them, and if so, when and why? A common response from many pastors and commentators is no. And to support that position, they usually cite the words of Jesus as he was being arrested. So, reading Matthew 26, 50-54, that's when he's being arrested, it says, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? Well, John helpfully filled us in on who this swashbuckling hero was. It was the apostolic leader, Peter. The Christians are forbidden from carrying weapons school, takes this verse as the preeminent proof that Jesus was a pacifist who would have voted against the Second Amendment if he were around to do so. Most of the members of this school also base this idea on Jesus' instructions to love others, including our enemies, and raising a weapon to another human being is not an expression of love. And they're wrong on both counts. 
Actually, love in the New Testament is the Greek word agape, which means sacrificing for another person's highest benefit without any expectation of a reward. It could be accompanied by a sentiment of love, but sentimentality is not required. On the other hand, sentimentality without sacrificing for another person's highest benefit is self-motivated. It's a response to a perceived benefit. The sentimental kind of love is described by another Greek word, but it's not the word Jesus ever used when talking about Christian love, because Christian love has nothing to do with a sentimental emotional state. It has to do with one's will, a determination to help another person despite any costs to ourselves. That's agape. So back to swords. The first thing an astute student of godly wisdom should notice is that Peter was carrying a sword. It's so obvious that most people never think anything of it. Do you suppose that was the first time Peter carried a sword? Do you think that Jesus, the God-man, didn't know that he was carrying a sword? The answer to the first question is almost certainly no. It was not the first time Peter carried a sword, and it wouldn't be the last. In fact, I rather think he carried it regularly. The group of disciples did a lot of walking along several dangerous roads as they crisscrossed Judea and Samaria and Galilee, roads that were filled with bandits and criminals. Some kind of weapon was necessary to defend travelers from these bandits. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if a bunch of the other disciples also carried weapons. As to the second question, of course Jesus knew that Peter carried a sword. Jesus had the Holy Spirit protecting him, but Peter had to depend on a blade of steel. None of the disciples really believed that Jesus was God until after the resurrection. And if an obvious God isn't walking along with you on a dangerous road, then you can bet you're going to take along whatever implement of protection you can get. The fact that Peter still had a sword with him after three years with Jesus on the missionary trail illustrates the state of mind of the disciples and their practical approach to security. It also shows that Jesus was almost certainly aware of the armaments for a long, long time, and he didn't say anything about getting rid of them. So if carrying weapons for personal security was normal, what did Jesus mean by the quip? As usual, the context is everything. The party arresting Jesus was sent by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council in Israel. They were the government. The arresting party had been sent there by the Sanhedrin on official business to apprehend an accused criminal. The Apostle Paul had not yet written his epistles about our behavior before an official representative of government, but Jesus didn't need Paul's letters to know how to behave, because Jesus, as God, already knew. The Holy Spirit had informed Paul, and Paul wrote down the instructions he was given. One of those instructions is that we're not to violently rebel against those who are anointed by God to rule in a governmental capacity, whether they are anointed by God directly or indirectly. That instruction should not be taken to mean that every government is good or that government officials always do the right thing. It is a practical acknowledgement that every government has been given enforcement powers and that one of the duties of every government is to maintain public order. Anyone who violently opposes the rule enforcers will automatically bear the wrath of the government. And that's a rule. It's for this reason that Paul said in Romans 13:4, They, the government rule enforcers, do not carry the sword for nothing. The instruction to be good citizens is designed to help Christians avoid attracting the wrath of their government. So Jesus rebuked Peter, who had not heard Paul's epistles, and then conveyed a very practical truth. 
anyone who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So before we get all excised about weapons, maybe we should dissect what that phrase, live by the sword, means. Let's put it in modern terms. If I have a gun by my bedside or in the gun safe, do I live by the gun? No. Mostly, the gun just sits there collecting dust. If I go a step further and carry a concealed firearm while shopping, am I living by the gun? No. That firearm is there for an emergency situation. It's not a tool of my trade. Who uses firearms as a tool of the trade? Well, law enforcement officials do, of course, because, as Paul said, they don't carry arms for nothing. That is a tool of their trade. Who else carries arms as part of their trade? If you answer the military, yes, you'd be correct. Members of the military may not carry firearms every day, but if you've ever been in the Army or the Marines, you know very well what the primary tool of the trade is. If you go to sleep and somebody takes your rifle in the Army, guess what's going to happen to you? That's one of the earliest threats that are pounded into the heads of new recruits at training. You sleep with your rifle, and preferably on your rifle. That is a soldier's tool of the trade, and soldiers know how to use it. Who else uses firearms as a tool of their trade? Well, the mafia does, and even run-of-the-mill criminals do. They carry weapons, and they use them. These practicing criminals are principal targets of law enforcement, and law enforcement officers can and will use deadly force to stop and apprehend them. Their criminal activities make them targets of the government. Who else uses weapons as a tool of their trade? People we today would call terrorists. They go by other names too, like freedom fighters, jihadis, rebels, cartels, and gangs. The common denominator with all these groups is that they will draw the ire of law enforcement and sometimes the military when they practice their trade. The government actively seeks to stop their activities, apprehend or terminate their operatives, and liquidate their operations. They draw the wrath of government. So that's the context in which Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. If they were to become violent rebels bent on overthrowing civil authority, they would soon be eliminated by that very civil authority they were trying to overturn. How is this little band of rebels going to fare against the Jerusalem authorities, much less the Roman army? Yes, it's true, said Jesus, that he could summon 12 legions of angels if he wanted to. And for those who are math-challenged, that's about 72,000 angels. Given that one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, according to 2 Kings 19.35, they surely would have bolstered Peter's brash position. But that wasn't part of the plan. The disciples may have wanted to storm the Bastille with Jesus, but it was not the time or the place to engage in political warfare. Put the sword away, Peter. So where does that leave us with regard to firearms? If you want to be a gun-toting government rebel, just understand that you are very likely going to lose that battle, and God isn't going to be too pleased with you for that kind of open and unfocused defiance. But if you have a gun for self-defense purposes, especially for group or family defense, well, that's a different matter. We are not to become vigilantes and take the law into our own hands, but we can use force to defend ourselves, our families, and other innocent people from criminals and bandits. That's a long, well-established biblical human right. Throughout the entire Bible, acting in self-defense is always justified. Seeking retribution, Revenge, 
evening up scores, giving those creeps what they deserve, and all other forms of violence initiated by an individual for personal vengeance reasons, even when that individual or his close friends and relatives have been viciously wronged, is condemned from one end of the Bible to the other, because that's the government's role. But aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek and give them our cloak too? Aren't we supposed to love our neighbor? Yes, and yes. To the extent that it's up to you, you should avoid violence by giving the creep whatever he wants. Let him live another day in the hope that he will repent and get good with God, because that's what God really wants. Don't hate the thug, but feel bad for him, because he's facing an eternity in hell if he doesn't recognize the direction he's going and the eternal valuelessness of whatever it was he took or he did. But if the creep escalates the confrontation to a potentially deadly level, then you can use whatever force is necessary to defend yourself and anyone else who is around. You just have to restrain yourself when the attack stops. God does not desire a society of wimps who can't and won't protect the weak and helpless members of society and will just roll over for every provocation. The Bible tells us men to act like men for a reason, 1 Corinthians 16.3. But like I said, this is a controversial topic, especially in this age of gender confusion and feminization of men in a society that eagerly consummates every kind of detestable sin imaginable. The world has all but swallowed the American government, most international corporations, NGOs, and many state and local governments as well. We're living in a time when the American government has actually turned on its citizens to do the will of a foreign entity so that it can establish an international center of political and military power to which the United States government and its citizens will be subjugated. That's the intention of globalism, and that's what our political and business leaders are actively trying to do every day. Our leaders are working for a foreign interest that does not want America to exist as a free country for very much longer. And these leaders are making decisions that can only have the intention of destroying America, the country, and freedom as a concept as quickly as humanly possible. And while a nuclear war is not one of the preferred options for these foreign plotters, it's not been taken off the table either. All of this activity is part of Satan's plan to create a one-world government that will bring the worship of millions to himself. Up to this point, we've looked at the world mostly from Satan's point of view. It's time to switch to the human perspective because that's the one where we can most readily spot the deceptions and the evil intentions. While the world system works for Satan, he does not exercise total control over most of the people in it. People have this annoying tendency to retain their personal aspirations and desires in the face of spiritual manipulations, evil and twisted as many of these people are. But that is a problem only because Satan needs his loyal followers to advance the system in a unified direction. When people get it into their heads that they can do whatever they want their own way for their own glory and advantage, it creates a political and directional instability that helps us to identify and spot the players at the highest levels of power. I'm talking about the satanic players. But before we get too far into this, let's first get something cleared up. There are many people out there who do not want you and me to understand very much. They want us to joyfully embrace whatever rubbish they pitch at us. When we try to make sense of things that don't seem to make much sense, these people try to intimidate us into stopping our inquiry by either accusing us of being some heinous villain, like a phobe, 
a Nazi, a misogynist, a microaggressing cisgender white racist, or something like that. Or they contemptuously mock and dismiss us as conspiracy theorists. That is the tin hat phrase that terrifies many good people into docile submission. So what is a conspiracy theory, and where did that phrase come from? I'm actually impressed with Dictionary.com's definition. Number one, it is a theory that rejects the standard explanation for an event and instead credits a covert group or organization with carrying out a secret plot. Or two, the idea that many important political events or economic and social trends are the products of deceptive plots that are largely unknown to the general public. Those are great definitions because they're true. But consider this. All criminal activities, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about conspiracy theories or when we're talking about cons actual conspiracies, all criminal activities or all conspiracies are carried out by covert criminals or groups or organizations in a secret plot. And the plotters often try to mask their activities under cover of a standard, plausible explanation. If you think about it, every police detective in the world has got to be a conspiracy theorist. Whenever they are faced with a crime scene puzzle that has to be put together, they undoubtedly assume that someone committed the crime and they are trying to hide their guilt under the shade of plausibility. Furthermore, they probably assume that most of the time someone else knows about the crime. They're covering it up. When we put together physical puzzles, it's a common practice to assemble the edges first in order to frame the problem. Well, detectives do the same thing. They need to frame a crime puzzle to get a handle on the possibilities of how it could have been committed and who could have done it. Once the boundaries of the puzzle are in place, the inner details can be worked out. The boundary of a crime problem defines the investigation. It tells the investigator what is possible and what's not possible. Investigations that start at a random point tend to produce bad conclusions because the random point is usually a biased assumption on the part of the investigator. He might think something like, I know the husband did it because the husbands always do it. And from that point on, everything that investigator looks at is viewed through the lens of guilt for the husband. Data that support the husband's guilt are retained and sometimes embellished while data that refute his guilt are conveniently ignored or buried. The intent is not to get to the truth, but to obscure it in order to be proven right. Accusations of conspiracy theories are nothing more than brash attempts to intimidate the investigator or obfuscate the investigation. Which is not to say that every conspiracy theory is true, but there are ways of determining if a conspiracy theory is true that should preclude people from winging that phrase around in an aggressive attempt to quench inquiries. So where did the phrase come from? Well, one theory claims it was invented by the CIA around 1967 to cast aspersions on the official account of Kennedy's assassination. But another theory says it's been in circulation since the 19th century, so it's kind of hard to pinpoint its origin. Criminal behavior is usually a conspiracy, which is just a cooperative effort among people who are disguising their real intentions. We have to have a theory of wrongdoing before we can identify a target of conspiracy to investigate. Every criminal organization is a conspiracy, including companies that participate in pay-to-play bribery schemes that are adored by corrupt politicians. Anytime power, money, and fame are at stake, there will be corrupt people around who try to obtain it corruptly. 
and they usually need to work in groups to get what they want. As the scale of the potential payoff goes up, the scale of corruption and the number of people who are involved in the corruption increases. That makes a classic conspiracy. So on this channel, we aren't going to talk about conspiracies, although we will discuss theories. Theories are models of reality against which we can compare facts. The models evolve as more facts are obtained, which is how science works, or how it's supposed to work. A theory is not reality, but a working approximation of reality. Don't be confused with the scientific term theory, which is different. Scientific theories are models of reality that are generally accepted by the scientific community to be a true and accurate representation of how a scientific principle works. What regular people call a theory, scientists call a hypothesis, or sometimes a model. We'll just stick to the regular people language. We'll call it a theory. To get to the truth, we have to start with a concept and the concept today is that Satan wants to construct a worldwide empire headed by his guy, the Antichrist. From Satan's perspective, the purpose of this empire is to corrupt humanity and induce human beings to worship him. To build his empire, he has to work through human intermediaries, many of whom have their own agendas. Since God is Satan's great enemy, Satan wants to prevent people from joining forces with him and he wants those who have joined him to be pulled away and neutralized. Jesus works to build his church on the earth that Satan runs. Satan is the king, and Satan uses his system to corrupt and eliminate it. Meanwhile, the political battle to construct a single world government rages on. The end goal of the human beings who are trying to build this system is to construct a world of people who are enslaved to a tyrannical, top-down, technocratic system. The people who are working to implement this system have certain beliefs they cherish and that influence their behaviors. They are, and there's six of them. There are too many people on the earth, and the ideal worldwide population should be no more than 500 million. Number two, we should worship nature, not God. Number three, man is his own God and should be free to determine his own collective destiny. Number four, to determine a collective destiny, we must subordinate the will of billions of individuals to a single will. Number five, to achieve our greatest potential and destiny as a species, we must create a single unified purpose with a single powerful mind directing the many parts. And number six, to transcend the limitations of mind, space, time, and our human bodies, we must develop artificial and enhanced capabilities. Now, does this sound kind of conspiratorial and science fiction-y to you? Well, these are the stated goals of the leaders of this worldwide effort. Everyone makes up words these days and uses them to label whatever they want, and I want to label this shadowy group of people the Cabal. Let me translate these six goals of the Cabal into plain English for Christians. I'm going to start with the, with the, the one I just read, and then I'm going to give you the actual translation of it. Number one. There are too many people on the earth, and the ideal worldwide population should be no more than 500 million. Translation, at least 95% of the world's population must die, and soon. Number two, we should worship nature, not God. Translation, nature worship is the spiritual way to celebrate sin. Number three, man is his own God and should be free to determine his own collective destiny. Translation, 
There are no rules for the people who rule. Number four. To determine a collective destiny, we must subordinate the will of billions of individuals to a single will. Translation. The many slaves will be given a hive mind so that they will serve the elites effectively, efficiently, and happily. Number five. To achieve our greatest potential and destiny as a species, we must create a single unified purpose with a single powerful mind directing the many parts. Translation. You will willingly believe whatever the elites tell you or you will be killed. Number six. To transcend the limitations of mind, space, and time, and our human bodies, we must develop artificial and enhanced capabilities. Translation. You will be modified into a transhuman, or you will be killed. See, we don't need confusing language to understand simple ideas, and we don't need to play word games. These are their stated international goals. So next week, we will see where these goals came from and maybe start to see how our leaders are working to implement them. But for today, if you found this podcast interesting or useful or important or even entertaining, please recommend it to someone who you might know who benefits it. Give it a thumbs up or a happy face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Please pray for this podcast that it can reach more people and help them personally and spiritually because that's kind of the whole point. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, which you've discovered because you're listening to one, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. At least the last time I checked all these, they were still operating. I haven't been deplatformed. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and get ready to do the work of God and discern some conspiracy theories. 